Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Bay Preps Insider Podcast. As always, I am your host, Ethan Castle. Winter is coming. No, this is not a Game of Thrones reference, although maybe that can clickbait a few people into listening. We're fully into winter sports mode, and yet, officially, it's not winter yet. The first day of winter isn't until the 21st. That coincides with the (coughs) winter solstice, which is the day of the year with the least daylight. It's also when the Earth is tilted the farthest from the sun. But realistically, if we were to start winter at an appropriate time, like, when does it actually feel like winter? I'd say right around when daylight saving time ends. When clocks change. Or somewhere around, like, middle of November. If winter is three months, it should be, like, mid-November to mid-February, I think. Because then once once mid-February hits, you know, spring training starting, it doesn't feel like winter, days are getting longer. Technically, we get more and more sunlight progressively each day of winter. But yeah, by mid-November, you know, we're hitting... We're hitting basketball season, or maybe Thanksgiving should be the first day of winter. Sometime between, like, the first weekend of November and Thanksgiving. That should be the official start of winter. I feel strongly about this. Anyway, I mention all this because the final fall sporting events of the high school season are officially over with state championship football. So we're going to discuss those, and then we're going to get into the swing of basketball season. It's really here. It's been here if you've been listening. I've been out and about at a bunch of games, including the wonderful Gridley Invitational. But let's talk football first, so we can close the page on football season once and for all. State championships were played across Southern California at three different sites between Mission Viejo, Torrance, and Pasadena. 15 games played over the weekend. So, ascending from the smallest division to the highest, in Division 7A, Strathmore, who had beaten Lincoln, is your state champion. (coughs) The Spartans beat Bell Gardens, 42-7. Division 7AA might have actually been the best game across all of the state divisions, with Ferndale coming back from down 21-0, beating Fairfax 29-21. The Northern California teams have made a habit out of dominating the lower divisions, and that continued this year. Calusa winning Division 6A, 33-17 over Sweetwater. In 6AA, St. Vincent DePaul beat Wasco, 27-6. The Mustangs have their first state title. Division 5A, another NorCal winner, Woodland Christian, 23-13 over Banning. We do have a Southern California winner in Division 5AA, Ramona 35-7 over Pleasant Valley. Division 4A, Palma beats Mission Oak out of Tulare, 42-19, more on Palma in a bit. First ever state championship winner out of Monterey County. Division 4AA, another PCAL team, huge congrats to SoCal, they beat Jerupa Hills 28-7, led that game 28-0. 
Division 3A, Marin Catholic, 38-18 over Mayfair. 3AA, Trevor Rogers, Paul Cooners, Soli Bailey, and the rest of the Akalanes Dons bring a title home. 35-23 over Birmingham. Heck of a year for Akalanes. Couple of close losses early. Got to avenge one of those against San Marin. I'm sure they would have loved to get a chance at another meeting with Campolindo. Obviously being in different playoff divisions, that couldn't happen. Division 2A, Los Gatos with a pretty impressive comeback bid, but they fall short 45-42 to Central Valley Christian out of Visalia. Fresno State commit Bryson Donaldson dominating all season long for the Cavaliers. He ran for three touchdowns and caught a fourth, accounting for nearly 300 yards of total offense in Central Valley Christian's victory. Good news for Los Gatos. Jalen Thomas has been offered by San Jose State. You had a feeling that was coming sooner or later, considering how much Brent Brennan gets to see him play. See if there are any more D1 offers. But we now know that Jalen Thomas will have an opportunity to play at the FBS level as he deserves. 2AA, one of the better games of the weekend. Lacerna out of Whittier, stopping a late two-point conversion to beat Grant, 21-19. to Division 1A, Folsom beats St. Bonaventure, 20-14. Trailed 14-7 late. Scored, went for two, didn't get it, but had a short field after forcing a punt. And Ryder Lions threw the go-ahead touchdown to Jameson Powell. Folsom wins 20-14. Another state title for the Bulldogs, who have had more success in the higher divisions than most of their NorCal counterparts. De La Salle defeated by Mission Viejo, 27-14. De La Salle's offense stalled out in the middle quarters of that game. And in the open division, it was indeed Modern Day over Sarah, 35-0. Sarah held to less than 60 yards of total offense. The game did once again finish with a running clock. Couple of long touchdowns for Modern Day really tilted that one. Could have easily been within that 24-ish, 28-point margin. Remember, I had said it was going to be somewhere between 21 and 28. So, you know, set that right in the middle. Would have been 24 and a half. So I feel like my prediction was still decent. I don't feel bad about that. But I want to talk about the state championship structure in general. And so we've seen this common trend of the NorCal teams dominating the lower divisions and the SoCal teams dominating the higher divisions which I believe reflects on the system and just which teams kind of get churned out of it. Some of the lower division teams out of Southern California cannot compare to some of the lower division teams out of Northern California. I mean, looking at the CCS this year, the level of teams that came out of Division 4, that Division 4 championship between Palo Alto and Mountain View. That was a high-level football game. And then Palo Alto got thrown into Division 6 AA. Palma and SoCal in Divisions 4 AA and 4A. So there's something that needs to be adjusted you know, we talk a lot about, oh, the Open Division game's been a blowout and needs to be fixed. And yes, that needs to be addressed. But so do the lower divisions. Because it seems typically NorCal 
dominates the lower divisions, and then the Southern California teams out of the top divisions are great because the talent pool down south is ridiculous at the top. So what I'm... What I've really come to conclude out of this is that there are some really good teams in Southern California that get squeezed out in the higher divisions that maybe need to be classified into lower divisions at the section level. I I don't know what to make of it. Two other things to discuss. We have 15 state champions. Yes, we have a huge state, but a lot of these championships are rather arbitrary. Now, Nate Mollett of the San Mateo Daily Journal had a piece about, like, yeah, if you won no matter what division, you're a state champ. You made it to the end. But the the system that gets teams there, you can't deny that it's very arbitrary. You know, it used to be if you won a certain division, pre-competitive equity, you know, you're the champion of schools of X size. Whereas now, you know, if you're, say, you're the... 5A champion, well, uh, what are you the champion of? You're the best out of an arbitrary pool of teams that were gathered through a bunch of different measurements because different sections have different cutoffs and some move teams up and down through divisions. Some of them do it within a single season, just who's the best. You know, you if you're the CCS Division Four champ, you're considered effectively the number 25 team in the section. And all these different sections having different cutoffs and then teams being grouped into different divisions, it's like, what What are you the winner of? And again, that's not to diminish what these teams have done. The goal is to make it to the end of the season, and you've done that. The CIF's logic with the competitive equity is, you know, for example, it's like, like to use the basketball comparison, if you're in, you know, a top division that's supposed to be the NCAA tournament. And then the next division down is the NIT, and the next one down is the CBI. But the thing is, these kids, the goal, you know, you get to say you're a state champ, whether it's in Division 5 or Division 1. And the and sometimes the system with its arbitrary cutoffs can spit teams out where maybe the best teams don't advance. I think the example that I've alluded to a few times this year was Campolindo and the rest of the Diablo League. You know, Campolindo, Acalanas, and Las Lomas split a league title. Campos in Division One in NCS, they get bounced in the quarters. Las Lomas in Division Two gets bounced in the semifinals. Acalanas in Division Four, no challenge there until the championship. They win that. They win the NorCal title. They win the state title. When, in effect... Really, the difference between those three teams, Acalanas, Campo, and Los Lomas, is pretty negligible. What I've believed for a while now is that out of the lower divisions, I think those should be called bowl games rather than state championship games to being pretty worthy state champions. So it's hard to conclude what to do with that. But I really do think some of the lower divisions should be labeled as bowl games. I think the CIF could make some money off of sponsorships. I think you could do something with putting them at the same site each year. We've had a lot of discussion about the sites, and, for example, the modern-day Bosco rematch only drawing 12,000 at the LA Coliseum, state games not drawing a big crowd. 
The thing with state championships in a state this big and spread out is unless you have a draw like, say, LeBron's kid playing, which, by the way, didn't happen last year. Remember, Notre Dame beat Sierra Canyon and went on to win the state title. You're not going to get that many people to show up at a lot of these games that aren't affiliated with one of the two schools. We've seen that across multiple sports, football, basketball, volleyball. I think the argument you could make is that maybe the best thing to do then is to host state championships at the site where you're going to get the most non-affiliated audience members and the largest nonpartisan crowd possible. And I think the best place to do that is the Central Valley, at least for football. I mean, Fresno, Bakersfield, they go all out for high school football. We know this. So, on one hand, you might not draw very well for the games that don't have Central Valley teams. On the other hand, if you put the games around somewhere between Fresno and Bakersfield, I do think like your nonpartisan turnout would still be a lot better. I think if you put, you know, De La Salle versus Mission Viejo, well, maybe that's not a great example because Mission Viejo is right down the street from Saddleback College. Maybe maybe the better comparison would be you know, Folsom versus St. Bonaventure or Grant versus Lucerna. I think if you put one of those games in the Central Valley and promoted it properly, I think people would turn out. So my... My suggestion to the CIF, give it a try. If it doesn't work, can go back to the SoCal sites. But at least give it a shot. And then for the lower divisions, I really believe past maybe Division 3 or 4, we should be calling them bowl games. And you can make some money selling sponsorships. You know, the, the Vance Refrigeration Bowl or the E-Taxes Bowl or something. And maybe with some of those matchups, you could do set tie-ins each year. Like, I think if you, yeah, if you tie some of these games into specific areas and build some community roots, it can become, it can become like a capital E event and people will show up. Lastly, I want to talk about Palma. Palma, of course, won the CCS Division Three and CIF Division 4A titles. Had a very good team over the course of the year. At the start of the year, the question was like, what do they have besides Logan Saldate? Well, Thomas Nunes really stepped up at QB. Eli Dukes broke out as a freshman and is going to be a name to watch for years to come. Some really talented, under-the-radar guys like kicker Gio Gutierrez, linebacker Noah Orozco. I really enjoyed this Palma team. Only got to see him in person the one game against Aptos, but I really liked what they did. That said, there are some questions about their role in the whole state system because they effectively ended up getting knocked down into a lower division and getting an easier draw because they had to forfeit those games early in the year after finding out they had used an ineligible player. Those being wins on the field, losses officially to Soledad, King City, and Alisal. And... You know, it begs the question, how should that be handled? What do you do with 
a team that, you know, their on-field performance is better than what you get to officially measure. Or, similarly, SoCal, their only losses of the year came before they had their transfers eligible. Granted, those losses were against pretty great teams that I don't know if they would have beaten with their full squad. But I think they would have been much more intriguing games. But I ask this because... This does, especially in the Palma case, it does feed into the argument that, you know, you get an easier draw for losing. And I don't think you can dispute or deny that. Now, that's not to say that these teams are trying to lose. These coaches and these kids are obviously very competitive. Nobody in the immediate moment is going to try to lose a game, even if it benefits them in the long run. Simply because you spend a week prepping for a football game, you get out there, you're pushing and shoving. You want to win. But we can't ignore that the system does have some benefits for situations like this. And I don't think the solution would be, oh, if you forfeit a game, you just have to get kicked out of the playoffs for that year. I think I'm not sure what the answer is. But I can tell you for sure that the answer isn't the current system, which effectively gives you a softer draw because you lost some games. Another great example of this, we look at the PAL Ocean Division for football. Another great example, we look at the PAL Deanza Division for football this year. Menlo goes undefeated in league play, goes into Division 2. Palo Alto goes 3-2 and two in league play, they're in D4. Palo Alto season lasts two more weeks than Menlo, they get to hang a CCS banner, they get to play for a NorCal title. And it's just... I still don't know the right way to do this. There's some balance between rewarding teams for their success in the regular season and creating competitive games and ensuring that the best teams have the best chance to advance. And I don't know how you find that balance. Because nobody wants, you know, these 55 to nothing games. For example... Before the CCS went to the sort of power system, you would have teams like St. Francis get the top seed in Division Two, and would host the BVAL West Valley champion in a one-versus-eight game. Games where St. Francis honestly could have probably rolled out a JV team and still won. And that wasn't right. At the same time, it's not right to, you know, put these guys into a system where you tell them, hey, your season ends three weeks earlier than a team that you beat because you ended up in a tougher division, but hey, at least you got recognized by uh, getting the seed in the top division. Like, what do, what do you do with that? I don't think there's a right answer. I don't think there's a perfect answer. This is a very difficult state to govern. We're dealing with 40 million people, schools that cover all sorts of different sizes, demographics. You know, not every school with 2,000 kids is the same between income levels and demographics and, in turn, you know, which sports you're going to see kids focus on. I don't have the right answer. What I do think we need to do is we need to figure out one guiding question that I think will answer everything else. So we can kind of make everything else respond to that. And that's at the CIF level, we need to answer... What does it mean to be the champion in Division I versus Division II versus Division Three, And so on. 
And if we can just answer that question, I think we'll be able to create more of more of a structured and less arbitrary system. That's the question that needs to be answered. What does it mean if you are in this division? What does it mean if you win this division? And that's also tough for the CIF because really the CIF is managing a very loose confederation of sections. I mean, the 10 sections that make up the CIF are governed largely on very different measures. I mean, you have the southern section, which is large enough to be its own state, larger than most states. So it's like, what, what do we do? I don't have the answers for that. But I do think the guiding principle that we need to go off of is simply, what does it mean to win this division versus that division? For example, if you win CCS Division Two in basketball, you're the best team out of schools between this size and that size, with the exception of the couple that get elevated into the open division. You can tell someone what you're the champion of. If someone tells you you're the Division 5A state football champ, that's the question we still need to answer. Before we take a break, we're going to pivot a little bit to a pretty interesting story that I came across that ties into Bay Area high school sports. So I try to gather information from a pretty wide variety of media sources, see what people with different perspectives are talking about. You know, it's important to maintain media literacy. It's important to ask anytime you're reading something, why am I being told this? What is the author or the publishing organization's goal? And I think it's really important when you come across a story to try to find angles from totally different viewpoints and perspectives, because generally the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. As you probably know, there have been a lot of stories and a pretty lengthy national debate on transgender athletes, whether athletes who are born male and transition to being female should be allowed to compete against people who are born female. And one of the recent stories about that that came out through Redux or Redo, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, and then was also taken by some conservative sites such as the conservative sports site Outkick, you know, the Clay Travis site, as well as Post Millennial, was about a volleyball player suffering a concussion against a transgender player who played for Half Moon Bay. I am not here to share my personal opinions on how I feel about transgender athletes, how that should be governed. I am not here to tell you what to think. All I am here to tell you is that this story was cited by a few different sites and kind of spread around, was was reposted by you know some of the libs of TikTok type pages, and that basically an opponent got hit in the face with a spike from a Half Moon Bay player and suffered a concussion. And you can do some research to try to figure out players in question or which opponent this happened against, yada yada. I'm not here to do that. I'm not here to tell you how you should feel. I just thought it was interesting that this story about, you know, a pretty 
relevant national issue kind of hit close to home geographically. And I'm curious to see how it continues to evolve and just want to keep tabs on that and if there are any further updates. Generally, with this sort of thing, I think it just kind of stops at that and we don't usually get to find out much more. I don't think there's usually further fallout, but perhaps you'll have, you know, more attention on Half Moon Bay Volleyball in the next couple of years. I don't know if that'll mean it's just more people show up at games or if there'll be, you know, people holding up protest signs or what the deal's going to be. There were... There were similar discussions with state track and field competitors. The question I have that wasn't addressed in all of this, the only question I have is, I mean, it's not that common that concussions are suffered from getting hit in the face with a volleyball, right? I mean, generally speaking, if you're playing at a level where the ball is getting spiked hard enough to be able to do that sort of damage... The players are usually skilled enough to be able to block it. So did the player in question just whiff on one? Or is the disparity in skill level and physical capacity that staggering? Because that seems like something that we haven't heard much about, whereas usually the debate surrounding transgender athletes is, you know, someone put up a record time in, say, swimming or track and field. It's not usually happening in in volleyball. So this was a bit of a different story, and I'm just... That's the question I'm left with out of this. So I'll try to keep tabs on that and keep you guys informed without sharing any sort of personal editorializing Everyone can construct their own opinions, and as we take a quick break here, I'm going to give you guys this quote from a series on YouTube that I like to watch that's always in the end card at the end of the videos. Don't let anyone else think for you. Most people can barely think for themselves. If you enjoy what you're listening to, please be sure to subscribe to the Bay Preps Insider Podcast. Be sure to leave a review or rating. Commentary is always appreciated. And be sure to share this show with anyone you think might be interested, whether they are players, coaches, officials, parents, fans, alumni, you name it. So as mentioned, basketball season is very, very much upon us in full swing. We've had some teams that have been playing games for almost a month now. Pretty much every team at this point, even the ones that had a super late schedule because they were either just scheduling late by design or because they were waiting on football players, for example, pretty much everyone's played at least like three or four games at this point. And this time of year is part of my favorite because of all the tournaments the ability to go see so many different teams match up instead of just league games, the ability to go and watch, you know, four or more games a day. I really enjoy it. I think it's a lot of fun. And I had my eye on a few different tournaments around the Bay Area over this past week. Has no connection to the former Warriors head coach. Just the same name, so a fun coincidence. But that's all it is, is a coincidence. But over the past week, there was a lot of action, starting with the always fun Burlingame Lions Club Invitational. I went to the 
First day of that tournament, which included Hillsdale holding off Stewart Hall after getting up by 20, and Palo Alto scoring a really nice win over Half Moon Bay. The Vikings remain undefeated ahead of Saturday's huge showdown with Menlo Atherton. They are 7-0. Playing through Jarrell Clark and Gavin Haas. Also have some pretty impressive depth in the post. Burlingame once again reaching the championship of that tournament, but has not actually won it since way back in 2011 when I was a sophomore. It was funny because that was one of the few highlights of what ended up being a pretty dysfunctional season. The Lowell Cardinal Classic was also played over the weekend. And a bit of a surprise with Lick Wilmerding beating tournament host Lowell by 15 in the championship game. 56-41, to 41, really nice win for the Tigers after they had opened the tournament with a win over Marshall and then followed that up by beating Aragon. Last few years, Tigers have been down the pecking order within the BCL West. And, you know, early in the season, they've taken care of the teams they're supposed to, but good to see them picking off a pretty big dog, the presumptive favorite in the AAA. That's the sort of win that should help them prepare for what should be a pretty good league from top to bottom. University certainly the favorite there, but a pretty quality league altogether. Speaking of University, after beating Reardon at the Crusader Classic, they were not in a tournament this past week. They did, however, play a pretty significant game this past Saturday, taking on St. Ignatius in what's become known as the No BS Classic. Head coaches Randy Basolo and Jason Greenfield play for a trophy of a little bowl. Those two are very close friends. They have a great long-time rivalry. The kids on both teams know each other. They packed the Devil Dome, and SI held on to win by one. Obviously, I was up at Gridley, but kept an eye on that game. Good performance off the bench by Marco Cherkii, and then down the stretch, Raymond Whitley and Theo Lamb really took over. Other tournaments over the last week, you had Mitty taking home a pretty impressive title at the Father Barry Classic at Jesuit, beating Brophy Prep of Phoenix in overtime in the championship game. Tyler Jones named tournament MVP for a second consecutive year. Dublin beating league foe Amador Valley to win the Rob Varus Classic at Washington over in Fremont. Usually Dublin's up at Gridley, did not have the invite this year. Ended up having to play a couple of repeat matchups against league opponents, but winning a tournament for themselves. Speaking of winning tournaments, Granada took home the title at the Edison Winners Classic in Stockton beating Redwood by nine in the championship. Monta Vista won the Chris Huber Classic at Aquilanes, beating Wood Creek in the championship, a night after Wood Creek had taken down Doherty Valley. At the start of the year, I talked with Monta Vista head coach Nick Jones, and he made it sound like this was going to be a really rough year between losing some really good players to graduation last year and then the Kruger brothers transferring to Amador Valley. Uh, Monta Vista's 9-0. So, I'm I'm not a fan of coaches acting like their team's going to be way down when it turns out they aren't. Maybe that was genuine. I'm not sure. Because, yeah, talent-wise, it's not like Monta Vista has anyone who blows you away. I mean, Daniel Kojikaru is a good player, but they don't have any, like, oh, that guy jumps off the page, that's an obvious D1 player, etc. type of guys. And yet here they are at 9-0 because they've since beaten San Leandro and Bellarmine. 
There's something to be said about the fact that this Monta Vista team just does not lose at home. It's also worth noting that Nick Jones is one of the most accomplished coaches in Northern California, and if I was listing best coaches in the Bay Area, he would be at least within the first two or three I mention. The argument that was presented to me that I totally agree with is how many coaches have success at a school like Castro Valley and a school like Monta Vista. And I'm sorry if I've brought this up before, but it's worth noting because coaches that succeed at schools that draw from urban populations and coaches that succeed at schools that draw from suburban populations, the overlap between the two is very minimal, and Jones has had success at the highest level at both. Yes, he's had some great players, but he's also had some teams like this that don't necessarily have those guys. And there's no guaranteeing Montevist is going to have EBAL success because that league is loaded. But for this team to be 9-0 and is really impressive. De La Salle hosted the Christian Brothers Classic and won that little four-team event against St. Mary's of Berkeley and Justin Siena. Justin Siena and St. Mary's of Berkeley each posted very close wins over Sacred Heart Cathedral and their other games. St. Francis moved the Joe Schramm Holiday Classic up a few weeks and made it a set schedule four-team event where they beat Hayward comfortably but lost to the fabulous St. Joseph out of Santa Maria, a team headlined by Tunde Yesifu, who I've said from the first time I saw him, I really believe he's going to be the first person from Benin to make the NBA. It's easy to look at really talented players and say, oh yeah, that guy's going to be a very successful D1 player. There are very, very few that I have ever looked at and said, oh yeah, he's going to the NBA. And Tunde Yesifu is in that very rare category. And I'm especially excited to watch him and his team come MLK Day. St. Joseph is coming to the De La Salle MLK Showcase and taking on Branson, who just finished second at the Gridley Invitational. As I said, I was up there all week. It was tremendous. Went to all 12 games. If you don't know about Gridley or why I was there instead of state football... First off, Gridley is a town of 7,000 between Yuba City and Chico along Highway 99. It is very much a farm town. It is also near the Calusa Wildlife Refuge and a lot of really pretty scenery with migrating birds as well as the Sutter Buttes. And it is a town that really stands out and is known to the Bay Area just because of this tournament. So it started off... Before there was really a state tournament, Gridley's coach organized a tournament of champions. And then after the state tournament began, there were teams that would opt to go to Gridley instead of the state championship. So the state kind of stepped in and said, hey, you can't do this while we're doing our official championship. So they moved it to the start of the year. And it's really carried on like that ever since bringing in some of the best teams out of Northern California. Just consider the three teams that went 1-2 and two at this tournament in Clayton Valley, San Ramon Valley, and Clovis North. The basketball is phenomenal. The human connections are amazing. The teams get so much closer together. They stay with host families and build lifelong friendships. You have such a wide mix of teams. You know, you've got inner city kids. You've got kids from the suburbs. 
You've got kids from overseas in Reardon's case, thanks to their boarding program. And over the course of three days, it really brings all of these teams and all these people close together against the backdrop of some excellent basketball. So without digging into the details of, like, all 12 games, give you a quick rundown of what happened, as well as players to watch that I certainly enjoyed. And other things to note about the tournament, such as that the hospitality room is phenomenal. All the food you can imagine supplied by local families and restaurants. There's also a soft serve machine. It's like walking along the table each day. I recorded a video, but you'll go, you start off at the corner where they have the soft serve machine and the fridge, and then you've got a bunch of sandwiches from Subway, maybe some round table pizza, a whole plate of cold cuts and cheese, and then you get into the good stuff, the mac and cheese, the meatballs, the nachos, taquitos, tamales, chicken wings, ribs, tri-tip, it is the best. And it's also just like a place to meet people. You know, you meet the coaches, you meet the host families, you meet the tournament organizers. Huge shout out to everyone who puts this on every year. There are a lot of good tournaments, but very few that are this well run and almost none that also have this level of connection with the host family factor. Most years, the host Bulldogs get crushed in every game, and while the final scores were lopsided in all three of their games this year, this team's not bad. Like, if you took the way they played against Salesian and applied that against more pedestrian teams, they're going to do a good job. Like, within Northern Section D4, I would be surprised if they are not at minimum in the top four. I don't know the whole lay of the land up there. They got some size, and they got a couple of shooters. Uh, Aaron Kular is a... Skinny, six foot eight. He is committed to UC Merced. And I get the feeling there are going to be schools that are going to be begging for him to transfer after a couple of years where he really gets to develop his instincts more, playing around collegiate teammates, and as he gets to bulk up in the weight room. San Ramon Valley did not have the most successful week, losing to Reardon and Clayton Valley before playing Gridley. They were responsible for the highlight of the tournament, Elliot Conley absolutely posterizing a Gridley player who, to his credit, got right up, like jumped to his feet without using his hands, took it like a champ. You don't want to get dunked on, but he put on a clinic in how to conduct yourself when you get dunked on. SRV definitely misses six foot seven forward Will Ambage, who played in the first game sparingly, has been planning games off and on after coming back from injuries, but then did not play in the final two games. Not sure what his status is going to be moving forward. But they certainly miss an element that he provides sort of a dynamic aspect. And the ability to score from anywhere on the floor and create a mismatch. Well, they certainly have no shortage of good players. Seamus Dealey made the all-tournament team. And in fact, the tournament director had said Dealey was one of his favorite players of the whole weekend. But the matchups are a little more conventional when you're dealing with guys that aren't 6'7 and can shoot. 
Clayton Valley looked like a very young, up-and-down team. The guard combo of Elijah Perryman and James Moore, they play off each other really well, and Perryman does a good job getting his teammates involved. Had 11 assists in the win over SRV that, when the year ends, I think is going to be looked back on as a very significant game. Could be for an NCS Open Division spot. But young teams that are still finding their identity go up and down. You can tell Clayton Valley still figuring out some of the rotations and substitution patterns and stuff. In that win over SRV, Jaden McLean had a really good game in the post. He's a multi-sport guy, plays football as well. And if he has success, then it really lets the guards do their thing. Because it's one more thing you got to focus on. Even if you're going to build the game plan around more in Perryman, having McLean to compliment them really makes a difference. I was pleasantly surprised with Sheldon as the weekend went on. Looking at their early results, including the game I saw against Doherty Valley, I hadn't been super impressed. But they're starting to find their identity, really playing through the combo of Jaden Spears, Jaden Woodard, and Muhammad Singleton. Woodard had been out injured at the start of the year and provides an element not just of size, but can go on a hot streak shooting. Saw him hit four threes in about three minutes in their game against Gridley. And then Tyler Rattler does a really good job spreading the ball around at the point. In their consolation championship win over Clayton Valley, all five of their starters had at least nine points, none had more than 11. And the starters accounted for all but one of their points in this 49-46 win. Clovis North finished in fourth place. It was great to finally see Connor Amundsen play again. I'd really only seen him play in the state championship in 2022. So a quick refresher on Clovis North and on Amundsen for those of you who aren't really familiar. In 2022, Clovis North went on a terrific run to the NorCal D1 title, beating a bunch of teams I really liked. That super fun Ma that super fun Miramani senior class with Tyler Dudo, Caden Bresnikar, James Fry. They beat them. They won at Folsom. Couple nights after that, they beat Sacred Heart Prep and Aiden Bracha in front of a crowd with kids all dressed up for the winter formal. Bizarre scene there. And then they beat SI to win the NorCal title before finally bowing out in the state championship game. I've said many times under the equity structure that Division One is the hardest for a NorCal team to win, not the Open Division. Because you're looking at, like, the number six or seven team in Northern California against the number six or seven team in Southern California. Anyway, even in that game, a loss to a loaded Damien side really liked Amundsen. And then he tore both labrums, I believe. Missed his entire junior year. Comes back as a senior. Wins the scoring title at Gridley, which is a pretty impressive honor. He had a about 25 a game up there, a little more than that. Can score from anywhere. Super tough, hits really difficult shots. Plays like a coach's kid, takes a ton of charges. Knows when to try difficult shots. Isn't just throwing them up for the sake of showing off that he can make them. And then his younger brother McKay, now a sophomore, is a knockdown shooter. Clovis North doesn't really have like a true post. They really play all guards with a couple of guys that can step up and defend bigger guys. But if you were to find a weakness or shortcoming on this team, that is the one. 
They blew out Sheldon, then got blown out by Salesian and lost a good game against Reardon, who finished in third. The scary thing about this Reardon team is how much improving they can do and how high the ceiling is. No team brings out more emotions than Reardon. Just looking at, you know, the NorCal Preps comments and grown men at each other's throats for reasons I can't quite understand. Anyway, they beat SRV, lost to Branson, and then won the third place game against Clovis North. Reardon still waiting on a few transfers, as well as a couple of injured players. They were without Nathan Shamala and sophomore Jason Davis to injuries. And then when January begins, they will have 6'10", Nessa Menike, as well as George Kersich and Ryder Bush. Kersich and Amenike should probably step into the starting lineup right away. And they're going to still be dealing with, you know, the issue of how do you distribute the ball? A lot of talent going around, not enough shots for everyone. There's one ball to go around. I think they're starting to figure out that distribution and identity. In the third place game, they got Jasir Rencher and Pinole Valley transfer Jordy McKenzie much more involved offensively. McKenzie won the three-point contest at the tournament and is just a lethal catch-and-shoot threat. He is committed to Eastern Washington. First time really watching Zion Sensley since his freshman year, since I don't pay attention to prolific prep or other schools that aren't part of state governing bodies or so-called national prep programs. Sensley's ceiling is outrageous. 6'8", skinny, super athletic, the ability to score from anywhere. And what's really terrifying is he's still getting acquainted with team basketball. I think at a place like Prolific, you get a lot of individual skill development, but don't really learn how to play in a team setting. And there's just things with spacing on the floor and his role defensively and rebounding that he's still learning. And it'll be terrifying if he really masters that. And then if you combine that with the core of Andrew Hillman and Jasir Rencher, I mean, I'll take that tandem over just about anybody, especially on defense. I could go on for hours about Andrew Hillman. I've asked many times, what kind of freshman leads a team in rebounds, steals, blocks, and charges drawn? He is now a sophomore. There are a lot of really good 2026 players in the Bay Area. He is my first pick. This is not hard. And then it was really nice seeing John Tofi Jr. play for the first time. He had come over from Sheldon. His dad is now on the coaching staff. His dad, a Reardon legend in his own right. John plays like a coach's kid, 6'6", with length on the wing, draws charges, moves the ball well. Head coach Joey Curtin said he makes winning plays. And you can see that very quickly. Branson finished in second place and then went on to blow out Redwood on Tuesday night. I was at that game. Branson's had some really good teams. This team is the best they've had, I really believe. I don't know how you could compare to some of those teams that had success at the D5 levels in the pre-competitive equity days, but they basically start three point guards between Jace Butler, Samitri Carr, and Joaquin Aguilon. Their whole team is super strong and physical. They can drive on anyone. They can defend anybody one-on-one. They hit the boards really well. And they have so many different guys that could give you 15 to 20 a night, including backup guard Pierce Curtin, who did so in the win over Redwood. Which was officially a non-league game, as the MCAL has gone to a single round robin. 
which also has allowed Branson to really stack the schedule. They're going to the Tarkanian Classic. They'll be in the Platinum Division of the Classic at Damien, with the likes of Roosevelt, St. John Bosco, Clovis North, Salesian, Campbell Hall, De La Salle. It's an insane field. And frankly, in the championship game, you can make the argument that they were the better team, just Salesian ended up making a couple more plays, namely knocking down a 30-foot shot to win the game, courtesy of Alvin Loving. Both teams had some free-throw struggles, and the first half was really a grinded-out rock fight type of game. It was 23-15 to at the half in favor of Branson. Neither team could get much going early on. Nobody shooting well from outside. Both teams defending well in transition, and both teams super tough to drive on. They have great defenses, so... For half the talent really canceled itself out, and then the game picked up and got really good. Salesian started pushing the pace, played from behind almost the entire way, never led until the final two minutes of regulation, ended up winning 63-60 in overtime. These are two of your best three in the Bay Area, along with De La Salle right now. And then a bunch of WCAL teams are in that next cut. Mitty and Reardon certainly could make that jump to... This level, they certainly have the talent to, but both are figuring out depth. Both are figuring out rotations. Reardon's still got to get the cohesion together, considering that this is still a newly assembled team in a lot of ways, with the transfers and constant flow of moving parts. Salesian and Branson have the advantage of having played together for quite a while. And Salesian is a really fun mix of super talented sophomores like Carlton Periliat, and Elias Obenya, and a great senior class led by Aaron Clater, and then Loving fits in as a junior. Other really talented seniors include Amani Johnson, who played great defense on Butler in the championship game, DeAndre Pertit, who plays like a coach's son. His dad used to coach at Skyline. Pertit really stepped up in the championship game. He and Loving both made the all-tournament team. Even in defeat, Butler was the tournament MVP, and deservedly so. He is the first tournament MVP to not come from the champion since DeMarcus Nelson in 2002. He was playing at Vallejo. He then moved up to the Sacramento area, transferred to Sheldon, and went on to play for Duke. So Butler is in pretty special company. Anyway, it was a phenomenal weekend. These next couple weeks, we don't have as much in the way of tournaments, but have some good games still. The tournaments you do have, like I said, the Don Nelson Classic at Dublin, the Riley Christensen Classic at Clayton Valley, the Brett Callen Memorial at Casa Grande, and it's just a big week for Sacred Heart Prep. The Gators playing four WCAL teams in five nights, a seven-point loss to St. Ignatius on Tuesday, last night, Thursday night, an eight-point loss to Sarah in what really felt like a WCAL game with the intensity, the physicality. The home team getting a few questionable calls, as happens in the WCAL. Alex Neighbor scored a game-high 18 for Sarah, and Sarah just did a great job protecting the rim and making life tough for SHP in the fourth quarter. I think this is going to be a really successful Sarah team. Obviously, you have high-end D1 talent in Ryan Pettis, who's going to be playing at Fordham next year, but it's not just him. He has good chemistry with Neighbor. Andrew McDowell can kind of play anywhere. Alton Robinald is like your perfect Sarah player. 6'5", 
can shoot from the outside, can play the inside as well, super athletic, really improving defensively. And I think they'll be right in the mix. Mitty and Reardon will be considered the favorites in the WCAL, but I think they'll be not that far off, close enough to the point that it wouldn't surprise me if they won the league or the CCS Open division. Kind of in that same category as SI there. And for SHP to hang around in this game says a lot. I mean, in the last couple of years, they've graduated some serious talent. Aiden Bracha, Harrison Carrington, Sam Norris, Kevin Carney, and they just keep coming at you. The balance at the guard position between Drew Wagner, J.P. Kerrigan, and T.J. O'Brien is something. I think they're starting to kind of settle into more specific roles with Wagner as a passer and O'Brien as a main scorer, but any of those three could give you 20 on any given night. And this is a team that's missing likely starting center in Matthew Norris, Sam's younger brother. He's out injured. And was missing Oliver Marson, who provides some important depth in the post for the Sarah game as he was off at a USA water polo event. Good problem to have. I think we can already confirm that SHP is going to be a CCS Open team considering their win over Granada and that they've been right there with the likes of University, SI, and now Sarah. They play at Bellarmine tonight, at St. Francis tomorrow, to cap off a loaded stretch of schedule. With that, we're just about going to wrap things up, and I'm going to pat myself on the back for actually timing the break in the middle pretty well, to the point where it's... I'm not sure if it's going to be quite at the halfway point, but it's going to be pretty close. A lot of times, I think it's going to be the halfway point, and it ends up at, like, the one-third mark, or the 40% mark at best. So, uh, go me. And go you for listening to this. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't, whether that's on Apple, Spotify, or any other platform. Leave a review if you haven't. Suggest this show to any person you've ever met, and maybe even some people you haven't met. Just go up to random strangers on the street telling them to listen to the Bay Preps Insider Podcast. I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you so much for tuning in and for your continued interest in high school sports. Don't forget to not let anyone else think for you, and maybe help me come up with a go-to sign-off line.